Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. Brad Wilson, glad you could join us again. And don't forget, this program is produced weekly by the Christ Life Fellowship. Go to the website, christ-life.org. Welcome to podcast number 161. We're so thankful to be here with you every week and appreciate all the wonderful comments and all of the great things you're saying about the wonderful teachings from Warren Litzman. Today, part number seven of Warren's series on Jesus and Paul. Here's Warren. So I took him to Romans 16 and 25. And I said, this is not the whole of this message, but I said, this is a foundation stone in this message. I didn't take him to Ephesians 1 and 4. That's a foundation stone. I didn't take him to Galatians 2 and 20. He knew these things probably. They were very popular But I find Romans 16 and 25 is a very unpopular verse and is seldom talked about. The reason for that is it says in plain English something that people don't want to hear, especially ministries. time I got through talking with him, I I could imagine on the phone he was shaking his head because that was more than he could take. We're going to talk about Romans 16 and 25. You see, the way human beings are put together, especially as Christians, we really like to have things simmered down, cut down, newspaper style. We like fast foods. We like to get things over, settled, and done with. Uh, That's partly because our lives are so radically changed. We're all in a big hurry these days and don't even know where we're going because life has become that, just a merry-go-round. And so sometimes we don't want to really settle to what the Scriptures are saying, what the Word has to offer. This message of the Christ life embraces the whole of the Scriptures, but it is very keen in the areas that it speaks to its receivers, to its adherents. We are the adherents of this message of Christ in us. And we need to know where the Word speaks to us and how the Word speaks to us. And so as we go into this 25th verse, I want the Lord to speak to you about the various things that are here. We'll we'll take it slow and painfully, so to speak, so that you'll get an idea of what the final gospel is. The final gospel is actually the original gospel. So when I use the term final gospel, I'm talking to you about the gospel that God planned before Adam came into existence. I'll at times call it the true gospel. True gospel. I have to do that because the Apostle Paul faced the issue of what was the gospel in his day. His problem was not modernist. In Galatians 1, when he says, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which I preach, let him be accursed. His problem was not modernist. His problem was not anti-Pentecostal people. His problem was not anti-Christ people. His problem was the first Pentecostal church at Jerusalem. 
a church which had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit but had retained Judaism as its form and method of worship. I don't know whether you ever met hardcore people in the law, but they are the meanest people that ever claim God's name. I have to say that because they'll shoot their own to protect themselves. Very hard people. And that's what the first church at Jerusalem had become. Eventually, it had become so much that that Peter had been shuffled out and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a very cantankerous man, took over the first church in Jerusalem. So when Paul says, if any man preach any other gospel to you other than that which I preach, let him be accursed. He was talking about good people, people who were born again. He was talking about a, the core of people who had sat in the upper room on the day of Pentecost because they were preaching a gospel that was contrary to the revelation of Jesus Christ that had come to Paul. Now, how would Paul handle that? What would he do with this? He was dealing with a group of people who were so hardcore in Judaism. It wasn't what had happened on the day of Pentecost that made them hardcore. It was their retention of Judaism. You see, when Jesus of Nazareth preached, there was a church in existence. We'll call it the Church of Israel. It was still in existence. When he announced that he was going to build a new church based on Revelation, upon this rock I'll build my church, that was the church yet to come. That church never did happen until much later on in the book of Acts. But Jesus had pointed to this new church. And if we have time, we'll point that out where he said various things about that. But the church that was in existence accepted the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of what they thought was Joel's prophecy and continued on under Judaism. This is why I strongly teach a thing that Paul said that the word must be rightly divided. Because from the day of Pentecost on, this church of Israel still was in existence with strong Judaistic leanings. What happened was that as time went by, Paul had to face this issue. He faced it squarely in Galatians. He first said, if any man preach any other gospel than that which I preach, let him be accursed. He said, the gospel I have received is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he says, okay, Peter's going to preach this gospel that is centered in Judaism, circumcision gospel. He said, it's for me. I'm going to do what God told me to do. I'm going to preach the gospel of uncircumcision. So you see, there was nothing really holy about the early church. It was divisive. It had, uh, I've often thought, if I was ever going to write a novel... I, I wrote one. If I, if I write another one, I'd like to write about all of the strange things that happened in the early church because it is something from the family of Jesus who was set to put him in an insane asylum 
to James, his elder brother, who was set to kill him. Uh, you know, it's got more intrigue in it than there is in the latest movie. It is an interesting story. And then Paul came with a new gospel on top of that, and you can see what confusion there was. So the next time you hear a preacher say, we need to be like the early church, think twice. <laughs> Actually, you don't need to. So many of our churches are like that today, but uh, anyhow. So the Apostle Paul was faced with the issues that were at hand. It wasn't an easy task. It meant, and it is final letter to Timothy, that you've got to rightly divide the word of truth. Why? Because we had this commingling between the church of Israel and the New Testament church. The church of Israel was still based on Moses' law and many of the methods of Moses' law. It was a kingdom church that still held that secret desire to establish the kingdom on this earth. God had moved on from that. Acts 28, the gospel no longer went to Israel. The kingdom message was to no longer be preached. Most spirit-filled preachers today preach bits, pieces, and parts, if not whole, of the kingdom message because they don't know the difference. This is why Paul said you must rightly divide the word of truth. Why did he say that? He said that because you had these two Gospels conflicting with each other. Think about it. Peter preaching a Gospel where you had to do something to be saved. Paul preaching a Gospel of grace where you could do nothing to be saved. That has to be two different ideas. You can't mix them together. But yet we've done that. We have commingled those Gospels and the average church today is a, commingled, is a place of commingled Gospel preaching. Because on one hand, they say God's grace is sufficient. He'll do anything. And on the other hand, as I used to say, if you're not here on Wednesday night, you're not going to make it. So we have so commingled. We don't even know the difference, you see. It's just that's the way it is. That's the way it sounds. So Paul said you had to rightly divide the word of truth. When you get into Paul's epistles, this becomes essential, this right division of the truth. You start with Romans. First thing you do in your understanding is to know that Romans is one of the Acts epistles. Now, you know what the Acts epistles are? There are seven Acts epistles. We call them that because they were written between Acts 13 and Acts 28. In that period of time, they were written in the time that Dr. Luke records the book of Acts. The Acts epistles are Romans, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and the book of Hebrews. Now, why do we call these Acts epistles? First, because of their time element. They are written between the year uh, 52 and, and about the year 60 or so. They're written in about an eight-year or ten-year period. But what is it that is important about these seven books or seven epistles? All seven of those epistles have a separate message in them from Paul to the church of Israel. <coughs> this commingled gospel in his day, the commingled body of Christ, where Peter on one hand was still maintaining portions of Moses' law by the Torah, and on the other hand Paul was preaching grace. In each of those epistles, Paul takes time to address that subject. In Romans, particularly chapters 8, 9, 
or seven, I'm sorry, nine, ten, and eleven. Those three chapters are basically Paul trying to untangle the co-mingling by speaking to Israel about her need of a Savior. And it's so. In Galatians, much of Galatians, you'll be reading along some verses that belong to the in Christ position and all of a sudden he'll shift to making a message specifically to the untangling of this commingling. Each of the seven epistles, Acts epistles, deal with that. Finally, by the 28th chapter of Acts, in verse 28, Paul says that Israel is deaf, dumb, and blind. There's no need of trying to straighten them out anymore. And from that point on, everything he said and wrote had nothing to do with Israel. In fact, he only mentioned Israel two or three times in his last seven epistles. The last seven epistles, some are called prison epistles, but all of them are the grace epistles. He figures now there's no use to try to aim at this uncommingling anymore. We might now just settle down to what our message is. And so you get to the heart of the Christ life message in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Those are the last seven epistles he wrote between approximately the year 60 and 67 or 68. I bring this to you because you have to understand what went on when your Bible was taking place, when, when it was being recorded and written. To understand that helps us to know what Paul means when he talks about Jesus Christ. See, one of the great conflicts in the early church was there were people who had walked and talked, slept and ate with Jesus of Nazareth. And then here comes this upstart, the meanest man on earth who had killed believers, supposedly, who begins to preach Christ. And the question in the church was, what does this guy know about Jesus? How could he tell us anything about Jesus? Who is he? Ironically, the first places Paul preached after his Damascus Road salvation was among some of those own church, those very churches, Judaistic churches. You ever wonder why he had to go over the wall in a basket? It wasn't because the Romans were after him for not paying taxes. It was because those, those people of the first Pentecostal outpouring were so mad at him, they chased him out of the town and dipped that from then on. You read way over in Acts many years later, and especially in Galatians, you read that those folks from the first Pentecostal church were still after him. You remember that? You remember Acts 2, uh, Galatians 2? It uh, looked like Peter had become a convert. Paul just about had him settled into grace. He was doing things he'd never done before, and he'd come over to Antioch, and he had found fellowship. He saw all these Gentiles there that were happy in the Lord, and, and they were praising God, and they were saved, delivered, and whatever. And so Peter joined in fellowship with them, sat down at the table with them, ate with them, fellowshiped with them. 
when all of a sudden somebody hollered and said, Oh, here's a bus from Jerusalem. <laughs> Folks were there from the first Pentecostal church. You know what Peter did? He jumped up and reverted. <laughs> Renounced it. And that was the slow start Peter had of coming into grace, if he ever did. But he did accept Paul's message finally. But he jumped up and went out and embraced those folks because that's where the power was, supposedly. So when Paul writes about his gospel, you have to have feeling and understanding because of the things that have happened. It wasn't an easy lot for him, and God knew it. Nobody would want to begin the journey that Paul had to begin from being a ranked Judaizer himself, a rabbi, a lawyer, highest trained, most educated man we have in the Scriptures, from that point to being knocked down and struck blind on the road to Damascus and called by God to go preach grace was an extreme act of God. God never went after anybody like he did Paul. But of course, God never had a challenge to offer as Paul would have to offer. Can you see that? God never forced anybody in the whole of the scriptures to do anything. But Paul was forced by God to do it. He just had the heart to, to capitulate. He was out destroying saints and God knocked him down and there Paul said, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's capitulation on his part. God knew what he was doing in calling this man. When Ananias laid hands on him, some days later, the word was clear. Paul, I have called you to suffer for me. God knew what he was doing. He knew he was sending Paul into a hornet's nest. He knew that the Judaizers were Israelites who would not be stopped because God hadn't been able to stop them. God had sent his own son and they had crucified him. So you know God knew what he was sending Paul into. He was sending Paul into a religious world that would kill the Son of God over what they believed. What chance would Paul have to bring a gospel? And on top of it, he would preach a gospel that was different than Jesus of Nazareth preached in that it was a new gospel Jesus had given just for the Gentiles to be born again. Well, that kind of makes it exciting, doesn't it? That's a real beautiful story. But it's an adventure story. God's about to turn a man loose in a world that is hostile, a church world, a religious world, 
not with the commission that I'm going to back you up, I'm going to support you, and you're going to be greatly used of me. That's the kind of word we would give, you know, from the Lord. No, sir. God said to him, I've called you to suffer. What a love affair. Oh, this is going to be a love story. Because here's a man that's going to suffer and hurt. This is a little bit of an introduction to what is in this gospel. We call grace. You see, all our church life, we have been confused. We just see it all as one thing and ignore and admit and ignore and forget what really goes on. It's like our church world today. I suppose there are people that would like to destroy me, not because I'm anything like Paul, but they're just people that mean. I know that's so because I've got believers that I know personally who've almost been destroyed for following Christ in his fullness. That same old spirit is here today. It's a religious spirit. You say, well, it's of the devil. True, but it comes from people who have probably been born again. I don't have any enemies in the world that I know of. So far, I pay most of my bills. All the enemies I have are born again. They're saved. In fact, they'll knock you down if you say they're not saved. We have a lady in our fellowship in Wichita, Kansas. I like to talk about her. Her and her husband were Amish. You know what Amish is around? They lived in an Amish community, and that's a very self-bound community, life. Somebody gave them a magazine. It turned their life around. They had a revelation of Christ. She had two children a son and a daughter. The daughter married an Amish preacher. The son was an Amish preacher. It was a beautiful family, very close-knit. But the moment they saw Jesus as their life, did you know that every member of that family set against them, sons, daughters, and grandchildren? But the point that I remember most was she looked at me with glistening eyes one time and she said what really hurt was my seven, eight-year-old granddaughter that I loved dearly looked at me and said, Grandma, I sure hate for you to go to hell. I love you so much. She said that pierced deeper than anything. But that's religion. That's where the world is today. Because the gospel has been commingled, Christians don't know who they are 
and the world doesn't know what a Christian is. I talk to you this way because we're going to go into some scriptures that'll be mind-jarring. And it's going to make you stop and think about who you are and where you are in Christ. I'm going to take a position of the Apostle Paul that the church today is commingled so that people don't know who they are. And the only way I can help you to see a difference is to point out to you this thing I see in Jesus and Paul. Because here we have the two characters, let's say, who are ultimate and final in God's plan. One to give life, the other to give the message. The one who gave life could not give the message because it was not yet time. The one who gave the message was human and could not possibly give his life for others. We need to see how different these two are. And we need to see what a love affair they carried on. How that one picked up from the other unto the death. Paul picked up from Christ unto his death. Finally, was killed for this message. And you know who we suspect was the final power to put Paul in the Roman prison. It was the alliance between the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the alliance he had made with Nero, for he was a big political figure, James was. So you see, it's a very intriguing story. And when I read the epistles, I read and see things that are much different than the way they have been reported to us. So I'm asking you to set your mind on this fact. If there is a problem in religion, if there is a problem in Christianity, if there is a problem in your life, I'm going to set it at one point. Our gospel is commingled. Our deliverance will only come from uncommingling the gospel. Not a little bit, but entirely. My minister friends often say to me, well, a little bit of law won't hurt. One said to me not long ago, if I didn't teach my people a little law, I don't think I could get them back to church. All he told me by that was he hadn't preached any gospel to them that had food in it. He was entangling them by his program to get involved. Well, that's so. So we make the decision of moving on in God. Not every preacher is the same. Thank God God has many servants that are waiting before him and seeking him as never before. Our world is in a delirium. It is wicked and getting more so. That's because we live in it. Don't blame the world. If you had lived a hundred years ago, you'd have said the world is going to hell. It's bad. If you had lived 200 years ago, you'd say we can't survive. 
the world is too wicked. So the world is wicked in every generation. But Christ is the same. He overcomes everything and all things. And so we want to learn this relationship between the Jesus that is in us. Learn. Who do we get the learning from? Paul. How does God use Paul? The Holy Spirit will talk to you through Paul's message. And that's where we'll take up in just a little while because it's tea time already. You've been listening to part number seven of Warren Litzman's study on Jesus and Paul. We hope you've enjoyed it. Now, please let us remind you again to go visit our website because in our bookstore, you can find wonderful books and tapes and videos that Warren left behind with teachings just like you've been listening to. The address, christ-life.org, christ-life.org. Our thanks to Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into the archives each week to bring you these wonderful sessions. Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes. And this program is produced weekly by Teresa Ferraro, from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ life. <laughs>